and welcome to episode 25 of The Jared White Show, recorded February 27th, 2019. I'm your host, Jared White, and I invite you to join me in a curated celebration of the art form that is the web. I have braved the ice and snow to bring you another episode of the show today. I am recording this after having gone on a road trip up to Seattle and some of the surrounding towns there. I got some great footage for a vlog episode that I'm working on, so uh, stay tuned for that. If you aren't already, you can go to my website at jaredwhite.com, where you can sign up for my email newsletter and get notified when new episodes of the vlog and this podcast go out, and a whole lot more. I'm just going to jump right into the meta segment today, because we got a lot to cover in this episode. I went to see Alita Battle Angel in the theater, got to see it in 3D on a very large screen, got a great seat, so it was really a fantastic experience. Overall, I would say that this movie is really good. It's not perfect. It has some issues. I'll get into some of the, the negatives in a little bit here, but I'll start out with the positives and I'll try to keep this as spoiler-free as possible Alita Battle Angels, directed by Robert Rodriguez, and it's uh, partially written and also partially produced by James Cameron, so it has a little bit of that Cameron magic going for it. Uh, cast was really fantastic. Rosa Salazar did a, just a wonderful job as the voice of Alita, and I'm sure some of her, her facial expressions and other aspects of her performance must have gone into... Uh, the way Alita turns out on screen, because even though Alita is a CG character, uh, her lifelikeness was really quite striking. And um, I, I think I think the, the conceit of the movie really works in its favor here, because uh, we've seen attempts in the past of having a fully CG human as sort of a, a main character, or even all of the characters in the case of, of the Final Fantasy movie a number of years back, which was... Uh, it was definitely in that uncanny valley area that made it a little weird, even though it was impressive from an innovation standpoint. Uh, but in this case, because Alita is a cyborg, she's not really supposed to look fully human. She's not supposed to look fully real. So the fact that she's a CG character, uh, you know, you, you just kind of accept it and, and it and it doesn't really bother you as you watch the movie. And instead, you just get into all the amazing visuals and and uh, world building that happens. I appreciated seeing Jennifer Connelly. I haven't seen her in a movie in a while, and I thought she absolutely crushed it in this role as Chiren. And she just did such a good job uh, it, it, being somebody that you're 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 not quite sure what she's up to. She plays a very mysterious character, very conflicting character in some ways. Uh, so I really appreciated her performance. Uh, Marashala Ali did a great job as Vector, just a really fantastic job as as he did as Cottonmouth in Luke Cage. Uh, he, he's just a wonderful actor and did a fantastic job in this movie. Ed Scrain as Zapan did a really cool role in this movie. Very menacing, but also a bit charming as well. Just that perfect blend. He did a great job. Anyway, I, I could get into all of the different cast members here, Christoph Waltz, uh, Michelle Rodriguez. But anyway, really good cast, really great roles, 
great, great characters in this movie that, that I felt really helped make it come alive in a way that it might not have with a lesser cast. Uh, now, uh, Alita comes from a Japanese manga originally, this sort of cyberpunk series that was created by Yukito Kashiro. And uh, I think from what I've heard, I'm not familiar with the source material, but from what I've heard, it was pretty faithful to the source material and has been well received by fans of the original Alita series. And um, I thought it was really, really interesting the ways that this this world that was crafted, this sort of futuristic, dystopian, cyberpunk sort of world, was both familiar and different. You know, familiar in some ways, if you've seen movies like Blade Runner, of course, or the fantastic Netflix series Altered Carbon. So there's elements here that are familiar for that genre. There's also some elements in this movie that felt very unique, that felt very... Uh, specific to this movie that I have not felt in other settings. So uh, so that was really appreciated. Uh, s- some of the aspects of the world, the, the games, the, the motorball game was really stellar. I love seeing all of those scenes. And um, I also thought some of the, the different ways that the, the, the capabilities and possibilities of these cyborg bodies that are such a huge part of the movie... Uh, the, the things that you see on screen are just kind of mind-blowing in many ways. Uh, so I really appreciate that as well. Um, I enjoyed the story, but uh, unfortunately, this is where we start to get into some of the negatives. Um, I do feel like the, the, the pacing of the plot was a little strange. Uh, I know some commentators have, have mentioned that this doesn't really feel like sort of a typical three-act movie. So it kind of throws you off as you go along and you're kind of thinking... You know, where is this going? Are we nearing the end? What's going to be the resolution to these things that are happening right now? Uh, so you're, you're left a little confused at times as to where everything's heading. Um, I do think they did a good job of tying up a lot of loose ends in the plot towards the end of the movie, while also leaving a bunch of questions unanswered, which could be a negative if this were a standalone movie. And so that's really one of the questions here is, is Alita its own standalone movie, in which case a lot of things in the end are going to be uh, a little bit frustrating that you don't kind of get to peek behind the curtain there. Um, But on the other hand, uh, it does seem like the movie is doing fairly well, particularly in China and Japan. Its opening weekend did quite well there. So, So hopefully this movie goes past the break even point and we get to see a sequel in the future. And uh, if that's the case, then then they really have a great opportunity to take some of the plot threads that weren't fully resolved and uh, expand that out into further movies. Um, so I would say uh, if there is the possibility for an ACU <laughs> and a Lita cinematic universe, then I am all for it. Because again, overall, I thought this movie was very well done excellent cast. The world building was really interesting. Uh, The visuals, the the quality of the graphics of the computer animation here was really, really top notch. And I'm glad I got to see this in 3D because the 3D effects were so well done. So I really did enjoy this movie. Uh, again, a little bit of a complaint with the, with the pacing and the, the plot ebb and flow throughout the movie. Uh, I also thought uh, one of the relationships in the movie, sort of a love interest that's part of the movie, 
I felt like that whole plot thread could have been pretty much done away with and I would have been fine. It seemed somewhat unnecessary, didn't really help get you from A to B for the most part. So I, I just uh, felt like it was a little bit sappy, a little bit unnecessary. But, you know, if you're uh, 13 years old, maybe you're going to eat that stuff up. <laughs> maybe I'm getting old and jaded. Anyway, if you have not seen Alita Battle Angel in the theaters yet, I highly encourage you to go see it. Uh, if you can see it in 3D, I did think it was an excellent movie to go see in 3D. I'm glad I did. And, uh, and there you go. That's my review of Alita Battle Angel. All right, that concludes the meta segment and on to the link segment. Uh, first article here is by Jean-Louis Gasset. Jean-Louis was the CEO and founder of B, which was a really cool company back in the 90s. Uh, his past experience was as head of Apple France. He ran the French division of Apple. Uh, and then he left Apple, started B, and the purpose of B was to basically uh, offer an operating system that was really advanced in the areas of multimedia production, both on PowerPC and Intel platforms in the 90s. You could do all kinds of amazing things with video playback and audio and video production that seemed very futuristic, very difficult to do on either Windows or Mac OS platforms at that time. Um, I got into B sort of a little bit late in its life cycle when B was struggling to get the BOS installed on uh, PCs because uh, <laughs> Microsoft would not let PC makers offer the BOS uh, platform uh, very easily. They made it difficult for, for OEMs to offer anything other than Windows to be installed on PCs. Um, but anyway, uh, all that said, this article that's linked here in the show notes by Jean-Louis Gasset uh, is a cool uh, deep dive into the story of how B got uh, venture capital, tried to build the B-Box computer, and that didn't really pan out. And then they tried to get on PCs and all the whole story of that, and then the whole story of... Um, how they tried to get bought by Apple, but that didn't pan out, and Apple instead bought Next, which of course was founded by Steve Jobs after he had first left Apple. So with the purchase of Next, Apple got Steve Jobs back, which even Jean-Louis Gasset admits was really an amazing turn of events, because as we all know, <laughs> Jobs' second coming at Apple started the whole revolution of the new Mac OS X and iOS era. So um, anyway, uh, there's been this whole series over at mondaynote.com by Jean-Louis Gasset, 50 years in tech, talking about all the work he did in his very early days in the technology industry all the way up to today. Uh, lots of cool little anecdotes and tidbits. Uh, next up, interesting little essay here by Kevin Tay. He worked in San Francisco as a software engineer, and a lot of the things that he first liked about living and working in San Francisco, uh, it started to sort of fall by the wayside, and he grew increasingly disillusioned with how San Francisco was, was changing, not really for the better. All the kind of problems that are often cited these days with what it's like to live in San Francisco. Uh, of course, the, the very high cost of living is one of those things. But also the fact that uh, it's become somewhat of a monoculture in, in the sense of all the people that are there in tech, 
That's all they're doing. That's all they're talking about. It's just working in tech, being tech people. Uh, there's not a whole lot left to do <laughs> if if, uh, if you want to get away from, from the tech conversation. It's uh, a little bit hard to find an interesting cultural scene there, I guess. Um, this article resonated with me because I used to live in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, I lived about an hour's drive north of the city, so I did not live in San Francisco, but uh, I went there quite often. I actually commuted and worked in San Francisco for a couple years back in the mid-2000s. Um, and uh, there's just a lot that I really like about San Francisco as a city. Um, but for all the reasons that Kevin cites here in this essay, um, it's, it's become a problematic place to live. Uh, so what he did is pretty interesting. He uh, packed his bags and moved to Paris, France. <laughs> yeah, that's a switch. Uh, went to Paris, went to work for a company there where the, uh, the language spoken by all the workers is English, so he can uh, converse with his co-workers. He's living in Paris and absolutely loves it, having a wonderful time. And, you know, it goes without saying that Paris has an <laughs> incredibly amazing and long-lived cultural scene that has nothing to do with technology. Uh, yet, there's actually a really robust technology scene in Paris now. Um, so you kind of get the best of both worlds. Uh, you get the culture and you get the ability to work in tech. Um, so uh, congrats to Kevin. Um, a lot of the reasons he cites for why he's enjoying living in Paris and why he's glad he moved there from San Francisco are the same reasons I enjoy living now near Portland, Oregon, and uh, working and meeting people here in Portland and enjoying this scene here. So, um, so if you want to read about uh, moving and travel and why people leave places that they once loved and try something new, uh, I really enjoyed reading this article. Next up, here's an interesting bit of news. Emma Thompson, of course, the famous British actress who has done all kinds of amazing roles. One of my favorite roles of hers remains her role in Sense and Sensibility. Um, but she was uh, slated to work on a movie, an animated movie called Luck. Uh, it's part of uh, Skydance Animation. Um, but the company hired John Lasseter at the beginning of this year. And of course, John Lasseter comes from Disney and originally Pixar. Uh, tr tremendous influence on the world of animation with, of course, his work at both Pixar and Disney. Um, but John Lasseter has uh, been accused of a number of different sexual misconducts. And um, he has admitted to somewhat inappropriate behavior, although I think he's also tried to deny some of the more crudeous accusations against him. Um, but at any rate, uh, Skydance Animation hired John Lasseter, and Emma Thompson said, nope, 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 not not gonna settle for this, not gonna, <laughs> not gonna stand for it. Uh, so she, uh, she wrote a letter and said uh, that she's pulling out of the production of Luck, and she, uh, she says here, and I quote, it feels very odd to me that you and your company would consider hiring someone with Mr. Lassiter's pattern of misconduct, given the present climate in which people with the kind of power that you have can reasonably be expected to step up to the plate. And she goes on, much has been said about giving John Lassiter a second chance, but he is presumably being paid millions of dollars to receive that second chance. 
How much money are the employees at Skydance being paid to give him that second chance? <laughs> I liked that bit. Uh, anyway, so uh, so she pulled out of the production, and good for her. Good for Emma Thompson. I think uh, this story is interesting. Um, I have a link to the article on IndieWire about this in the show notes. Uh, I find it interesting because I think um, an actress of less stature, of, of less uh, reputation, uh, probably would not have felt like they could come out and be this direct and just pull out of a production. I mean, I think... Uh, you know, if you're fairly young and new to the industry, you you take the jobs you get, and um, that's in many ways why it's it's been difficult to you know enact change in Hollywood. Because if you don't have the power to <laughs> pressure people into change, uh, then your options are limited. And uh, people that have been in the industry a really long time, I think. Uh, you know, often get kind of jaded and just kind of say, you know, well, that's just the way things go. It's just the way it is. It's the way this business is, you know, like it or lump it. But instead, Emma Thompson is saying, no, we can't accept. <laughs> we can't just accept that uh, the status quo is is what it is and, and there's nothing we can do about it. So, um, you know, listen, I, I have immense respect for what John Lasseter has accomplished, uh, his work at Pixar and Disney has really been something to to celebrate and to enjoy. Um, but, you know, it, it does seem like there's some, some real personal issues with his behavior, especially towards women. And um, I think that needs to be taken into consideration for him to be hired on and, and work at an animation studio. And so uh, I think Skydance should uh, look at this seriously. And uh, once again, I am applauding Emma Thompson for taking this stand. And with the link segment out of the way, on to the image segment. And for today, I would like to present to you this really interesting site that I found courtesy of TypeWolf, which was uh, the creator of the week back in episode 22. Uh, East of Borneo is an online magazine of contemporary art and its history as considered from Los Angeles, and they also publish some books. Uh, and I'm featuring this site here in the image segment because I thought the design was very, very eye-catching and unique. Uh, so many news sites, so many sort of online publications, I think, fall into a rut with how they present content. You know, it's it's either looking like a very basic kind of newspaper layout, or it's just looking like a blog with a very typical blog format. But East of Borneo looks totally different. It's this really interesting sort of grid with with all these different cells that are different sizes. So it kind of uh, has, you know, large things over here and smaller things over there, and a lot of variety, yet uh, it all sort of lines up in the end, which is pretty hard to do on the web. Uh, it's it's typically been challenging to to have layouts on the web with with lots of different sizes of things that all fit into a grid in some fashion. Um, so uh, so hats off to the designers of the site. Uh, Folder Studio worked on the site for East of Borneo. And they did a really stellar job here. So uh, the link's in the show notes, of course. So check out East of Borneo for a really visually striking publication on the web. It was something that definitely impressed me. And finally, 
the creator of the week. I'm really excited to be featuring these guys. Heretic Happy Hour. Uh, it's a podcast by Keith Giles, Jamal Giovanni, and Mike DiStefano. And uh, I actually know Keith a little bit online. We've corresponded a few times, and I've uh, published an article or two of his in the past. Uh, and they just do this really, really interesting show. <laughs> uh, some might say quite controversial. Um, they swear a lot on the show, uh, just so you know. Um, pretty unique, pretty interesting to have that sort of <laughs> approach for a show that's about religion. Yes, folks, this show is all about Christianity uh, and sort of uh, challenging the Christian religion in America in lots of ways, but I think in in thoughtful ways and loving ways, kind of trying to to get people thinking, get people evaluating what what they really believe and what's important to believe. Uh, the show has covered so many different topics. Um, right now, they're doing a series all about sex <laughs> and uh, the the often troubled relationship between sex and religion, uh, specifically Christianity. Um, they, they interviewed a guy that is polyamorous, but is still a Christian and why he believes that the two are compatible. Um, they've talked a lot about the, the dangers and problems of, uh, purity culture. And, uh, anyway, it, it's just a really fascinating show and I've enjoyed it. Um, they have a Patreon, which I am a supporter of. And so, yeah, if you're interested in thoughtful, controversial, but very well done conversations around Christianity in America and various theological topics. Uh, check out Heretic Happy Hour. I'm proud to present them for this episode's Creator of the Week. And that's a wrap. I'm so glad that you could join us once again for another episode of The Jared White Show. As always, you can go to jaredwhite.com to read articles, see pictures, and get notified of new episodes of this podcast, as well as my vlog on YouTube. And be sure to go to patreon.com slash essentiallifejared to become a supporter of the show through Patreon. I really, really appreciate my supporters on Patreon, and I hope you will join our small but growing crew there. All right, you have a good one. I'll see you next time. Bye. Jerry Rachel.